So, yeah, what do you have to say about then this diversity in writing? Uh, I had a very, very, very immature little private joke in there because I was deliberately trying to create a very diverse cast of characters that was all white, <laughs> just because I could. I wouldn't say I have, that I have any greater message with it. It's just something I wanted to do because it's not something that I've seen done a lot. I think every single character in the book is from a different country and they're all white people. Welcome back to another episode of the Unreal Press Podcast. In its first, and in my now and in different city recording opinion for most podcasts on transgressive fiction, online culture, and everything from 4chan that's actually good. And today, we've got something pretty good indeed. A book I found so good the first time I read it that when I started this podcast, and this was like four years ago, I thought, holy shit, I've got to interview this guy. He's got a pretty interesting process and a pretty interesting book. That's right. Today I brought on G.S. Taylor to discuss the Seven Point Star. But first, as always, I am your host, Elie Shane. And today, in addition to our friendly neighborhood author, I am being joined by this bottle of Glen Carlew Chardonnay, the 2019 vintage. And I gotta say, I've been pleasantly surprised with the quality of Chardonnay in South Africa. It's really one of the two cultivars this nation does well. Uh, along with, you know, our native Pinotage, which is a red. But yeah, Chardonnay, South Africa, very light, very easy drinking. Notes of gooseberries, I'd, I'd like to say pencil and some other pretentious nonsense. But yeah, I mean, I know you can get this in Belgium because that's what the label says, you know, because of COVID, it wasn't ever imported over. But yeah, I mean, if you see this in Europe, Glen Carlew, try it, very nice. But anyways, thanks for coming on, Taylor. It's good to meet you on voice. Hello, and thank you for having me, and your kind words about the book. Well, yeah, I found it very striking. For reference, anyone who hasn't read it, Seven Point Star is the story of... Well, wait, I've actually just got the guy who wrote it. Dude, what's your book about? I have a simple answer to that, and a really long-winded kind of uh, meandering weirdo answer, so I'll just start with the simple one. Uh, on the face of it, it's about... A young woman who has magical powers and is a thief, and she is hired to steal a very, very, very powerful, important magical makeup in, from a flying city in Germany. That's a description of the plot. Right, right. But what it's about, to me, it was, uh, I mean, you probably didn't get this when reading it. No one is going to get this when reading it because it was just my personal thing. But when I was writing it, it was about, Kind of a story about storytelling. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I got a little of that. I mean, what it really stuck out to me was the importance of writing in your world. Because, you know, for reference, I actually am going to explain it this time. The, the world of Seven Point Star is an alternate history. And one of the ways that magic works here, that's revolutionized the world, is that it's written in runes. It's basically coded. And so, yeah, I mean, I definitely saw the importance of writing in the story and... Again, I suppose with the, how the different backgrounds of the characters, especially Reina, the protagonist, had this influence on the world. It was like a bunch of stories coming together to make the plot. That's definitely part of it. Part of what inspired the, a lot of the inspiration for Seven Point Star was again, about storytelling and about the role of magic in storytelling. It's like you're playing a story, why have magic in your story, especially in a story like Seven Point Star, which, as you said, it's an alternate history, which means it takes place in a 
reasonably close approximation of the real world, with the big uh, breaking point being the First World War, where this kind of way of doing magic was kind of invented and discovered. And in this world, this kind of uh, magic allowed the central powers to actually win the First World War. And as a result, there was actually no Second World War, so it was just the one great war. And then history is kind of diverged from there. I don't know if I should call it a joke, but uh, like this idea that I had that it would have taken actual magic for the central powers to win the First World War. Uh, so I just thought, hey, well, if they have it, and then they might as well win it and just try to develop from there. But no, that's actually a very interesting perspective on alternate history. Because what I've found is a lot of people, when they're writing alternate history or they're reading alternate history, really try and focus on getting that dream scenario done. Like, you know, my favorite alternate history novel is uh, Guns of the South, in which the South wins the Civil War, the American Civil War, because time-traveling white supremacists have given them the gift of the automatic rifle. It, it's a completely ridiculous book. It's like one of Turtle Dove's weirdest. But you can clearly tell that he thought not about how would the South logistically win the war, because that's another book series he's written, but rather about, okay, what if the South had machine guns? What convoluted idea do we have to then get back to? And so the time-traveling aspect of the book was just sort of hand-waved. But with this, I mean, I've seen instead, you, you've said, it would be ridiculous for this to happen. So that's why we have to embrace how ridiculous it is. And then let's explore the consequences of how this happened, even if it is, you know, quote unquote, absurd that they need magic. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> so again, to take this back to the kind of a meta level of it, like magic as a storytelling device. I am a firm believer that when you're telling a story and you're writing a book, you should have rules. Your world should have rules. And you should be aware of the rules, even if these were found explained explicitly to the audience. And they don't have to be, you know, don't have to info them everything, but you should be, you should know exactly what can and cannot happen in your world and what certain characters would or would not do. Okay. And this kind of gets extended to the idea of magic systems, like if you've ever read a fantasy book or discussed a fantasy book or planned or, planned or writing one, you have heard the, the phrase magic system. It's like, oh, yes, oh how yes. does your magic system work? And it's what you've touched on. It's about uh, writing in a seven-point star. And a system implies some kind of order, some kind of, uh, well, system, some kind of rules and laws that govern it. Yeah. And I do believe that's important. And reconciling that with the idea that sometimes magic should just be magic. Like, what if the South had a machine gun? Or what if the Central Powers just uh, magic, literally magically uh, managed to win the World War? Sometimes right. Right. you just have to hand wave that because it's like, okay, I'm just trying to tell a story, goddammit, you know, like... Yeah, that, that's one thing I noticed is because, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the Seven Point Star takes place in like 1930, 1940. So, you know, 25 years after the Great War. So... I, I think it's 1967. Oh, oh that I think it was the 50th anniversary. Uh, I mean, I, I obviously I don't expect you to remember it. It's been a few years since you've read it. I'm actually surprised that you remember much of it. It's so good to hear. Well, yeah. I mean, I went over it again. Yeah, no, the, the point I was going to make is that 
Yeah, I noticed the book doesn't really explain in much detail about how the Central Powers won the war. It only says they did, they used magic, and, you know, here's like one or two big guns that they had as proof that magic works. And I think that, yep. yeah, it's exactly what you're saying. It's, you just let magic be magic. Once the world is eternally consistent, I think from at least a reader's perspective, you can trust that the author is not going to take you for a puss, which is an Afrikaans expression meaning assume you're an idiot. Then you'll be willing to accept a lot of things like saying, yeah, they use magic to win the war because you know magic can be used for things like that. You don't need it to be taught to you exactly how. And I think often then letting people imagine it is a lot more interesting. Like, okay, well, how did they use magic specifically? Like in what combat scenarios? That doesn't need to be in the book, but it's fun for somebody to speculate about. Yeah, that, uh, that's something that could be done, but that's why this book is alternate history, but I would not describe it as speculative fiction. Because that would imply an actual, more in-depth explanation of these what-if scenarios. This isn't really uh, a very logical exploration of a possible scenario, uh, obviously, because it's all about magic is a thing now. And you read the book to remember that uh, the people who do magic in the book, they are struggling with this constant challenge of reconciling knowing how to do magic with magic being magic. Yeah, it's like this balancing act of knowing it's supernatural, but still understanding that it has some kind of list of rules and laws. Or does it? Uh, because it's what I was getting to that I just hate it when in stories, magic is kind of choked by laws and rules. Because, and it's something that I struggle with in my writing. It's something that I, I was kind of exploring as I was writing Seven Point Star, that like I said, I love it when stories have rules and they have inter an internal logic and I love magic systems. Right. But at the same time, there is, there is such a thing as too much. Yeah, I think that's also a danger. Yeah, just info dumping yeah. somebody. Because you want a novel, you want a story, you don't want a textbook. It's not even just about the info dump, it's about the existence of too many rules. It's like magic has this special place in my heart and i think it has a special place in stories or should have a special place in stories magic is well magic it is by definition the unexplainable you know there's that saying that any sufficiently analyzed magic is indistinguishable from science i forget yes, the source uh, of the quote but you know it's a, it's, it's uh, asimov right right yeah so and that may be very well be true but when you're telling a story maybe maybe you shouldn't analyze magic that much unless Unless that is the story you're telling. Obviously, that you can tell a story about that. That can be fun. But I think often people miss the point of using magic in a story. It's like, why? Okay, I'm writing a story. And I want it to be fantasy because, I don't know, I like fantasy or whatever. I, I had some cool ideas for some cool scenes. All right. And it's like, why am I including magic? It's like, that's just an extra step that the audience has to overcome, right? That's an extra layer removed from reality. Yeah, you need another layer of suspension of disbelief and yeah. trust that you'll pull it off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a heavy investment. It can kind of fall in on itself. Uh, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent. Go ahead. Uh, and I, I have a confession to make because I'm part of the generation that could have grown up with Harry Potter. I did not. A lot of my peers did. All right. 
<laughs> as it happens, I mean, I've actually been kind of, uh, I'm honored to have been accepted into like a friendly improv acting group. Let's call it that. Uh, that was, I didn't know this at the time. I was just invited by a friend uh, who was in it. It's, uh, it was actually an offshoot of some uh, local Harry Potter fan group. And I was invited there for like this kind of improv thing. That's how I was pitched to me. Just something, you know, just some, blow some steam off and some, have some fun. I didn't know at the time that about 90% of the problems for these improv situations uh, are Harry Potter based. And it's like, when I was a kid, I read, I think the first three books of Harry Potter. And even as a kid, just like, I don't know, 11, 12 years old, however I was when I was reading those, like, it was just too dumb for me. <laughs> it was just too stupid. Now, I am aware that later books become, like, they become darker, but I don't think they become smarter. Maybe they become more complex and darker, not necessarily smarter. And I, I just, Harry Potter is the kind of story that just has basically no rules for magic, except very arbitrary ones. It's kind of, yeah. it's, itit was my impression. I mean, I'm not a Harry Potter wizard, so it's like, if someone's listening to this, it's like an ultra fan, it's like, well, actually, there's all these, I, I don't know. I don't know because I didn't read them. Because I didn't care, because even as a kid, they were too stupid for me. So it's like, it serves a purpose. If I was half as creative and imaginative as J.K. Rowling, I would be so happy. Like, I don't want to this, uh, the work. Like, they, they are good books. They just weren't for me. Yes, and yes. the magic system, or lack thereof, serves a purpose. It's just so complete nonsense that you think about it for one moment. It's like some guy invented a flying car and they don't use it. It's like free transportation that would revolutionize the world. And there's like literally one of it in the world. Why? It's like, it's just stuff like when you, when you think about all the applications of magic that they could be using and they are not for some reason because the, because JK Rowling didn't extrapolate on the magic that she invented. It was like, I have this one situation. And it would make for a cool scene if this thing happened. Okay, so magic did it. Boom, done. Yes. And she never really extrapolates on, okay, but if this can be done with magic, and if, this, and if it is this easy, then why doesn't this get done on an industrial scale? And seven points are, is this story where magic is done on an industrial scale. It is completely stripped of its magicness by the people living in the world, you know, in the world of the story. Yeah, and I think that's a lot more realistic. I, I would think so. And it's like, so why is it magic? If everyone knows it and everyone uses it, does it stop being magic or should it stop being magic? And that's something that, you know, the book deals with a lot. The people who, they call themselves scientists, most of the people who create these magical devices that do everything, that is basically a stand-in for electricity and all kinds of technology. Uh, in the world uh, of Seven Point Star, it just—it's literally called Magitech. Like, Magitech is a really unimaginative and boring word, I think, to call it. But I felt it was important to keep magic literally in the name. That it is not explainable. Yes. And it should not be explained. And at the same time, they are trying so hard to explain it, and and to just. Okay, we know exactly how this works. We know how, what can be done with it. Let's push the boundaries. What are the boundaries? It's like, why does magic have boundaries at all? Like magic, by definition, magic is that which is not natural, that breaks the natural law. So why does it have these arbitrary uh, boundaries, right? And it's right. These, uh, these scientists' pages in the book, 
and so preoccupied with trying to find the limits of magic is that they don't realize that it's magic. It, it doesn't have limits or shouldn't have limits. They're trying to apply hard science and facts and law and logic to something that is by definition completely illogical and cannot be logical because if it, if it is logical, it ceases to be magic. I see this little paradox you're in then. Yeah. Of how can we keep this almost like sense of wonder, but at the same time have a world that is consistent and logical? I've got to say, it's, it's a very interesting thing. And I, you make such a great example of Harry Potter here. Because I, I did read some of the books, saw like the third movie, which was actually good. But I would agree, yes, that the books do get darker, but they don't get more intelligent. And I think, yeah, a major problem of this is partially. J.K. Rowling wrote a children's novel that was like more successful than Christianity in some places. And at the same time, she didn't think about any of the implications. She was just throwing ideas to see what they stuck. So when it came time around, you know, like book four for her to actually take the story seriously, she was in this terrible fucking position because the world itself didn't take itself seriously. And it was so weird and contrived. Like there's no reason for the wizards, for instance, to be as isolationist as they are. Yeah, I think contrived is the best possible word. Uh, because there are like throwaway lines that kind of explain some things of why things are the way they are. But mm. they're throwaway. It's, it's contrived. It's very, very contrived. That's a very good word. Yeah. No, it is by no. design. Yes. Yeah, I think like Harry Potter is one of those books that's archetypally style over substance. It doesn't, you know, say that much if you try and read its message, but it portrays this message in a way that was incredibly influential to a generation. Yeah. But I actually want to know now, why would you then consider it's like the opposite of Harry Potter, apart from your own work, which you, you've described as? Did you have any inspiration from other fantasy novels that do have like an industrial magic system? Well, as it happens, uh, there is another series of books, a trilogy actually, about a British boy wizard in a world that is divided between a society of wizards and a society of not wizards. And it's called the Bartimaeus Trilogy. I may be pronouncing that wrong. It's such an odd name, Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. Yeah, it's, it's, ah. it's uh, from the New Testament of the Christian Bible, Gospel of Luke, yeah. I think. Yeah, I seem to recall actually looking that up a while back, but it's been years. But it, I read that as an adolescent, uh, somewhere in my mid-teens. It is a lesser-known thing than Harry Potter. And like, based on how I just described it, it sounds like a ripoff of Harry Potter. And I haven't checked the dates. I would, I would uh, wager it came out after Harry Potter, probably. Yeah, and it was 2003. Did, yeah, yeah. And there is no way it was not inspired, at least partially, by Harry Potter. But it's superficial similarities are where the similarities end. And okay. I remember the Martinus trilogy, and it, it did have an influence on Seven Point Star as well. So there's this cross pollination going every uh, in every direction here. Uh, right. The Martinus trilogy is like if okay, magic exists and we can use it, then why aren't we using it? And the answer is, obviously, we are using it. We are not stupid. So one of the most contrived things, like the entire story of Harry Potter, hinges on the fact that the wizards are for some reason in hiding. That scale of conspiracy and secrecy could not be sustained. It, it is literally unsustainable. 
And this story, Benzema backwards trying to justify it. And the Baltimore strategy and seven points star is like, okay, that's really stupid. For, for one thing, it is impossible to do. For two, why would you do it? Like, it's, like, it's a good plot device for yes. a children's story, but it makes no sense to do at all. Yeah, it doesn't hold up to a suspension of disbelief. I'm so glad you said that because Harry Potter gets away with a lot of suspension of disbelief, immense amounts of it, because it's a kind of book that's, I mean, this is my impression of it. It's like, by design, it started out, obviously, as a children's story. And Harry is the single most boring character in the entire world. Like, he, he is not a character. He, he's just a blank slate. Yeah, his like, end goal is to be a cop. He's, he's not an interesting yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's not supposed to be. His role is to let the audience project themselves into Harry. And it's like, uh, it's like you're a child and you're 10 years old. And it's like, oh, when I turn 11, maybe I'll get my letter from Hogwarts because I want to go to Hogwarts because it's such a magical and quirky place. And I get to get away from my shitty middle-class family. And it's so good. And meet all these friends. It's, it's, it's kind of wish fulfillment and escapism. And that's not bad. Like, there's a place for that in the world. Like, by God, I mean, look at Harry Potter and how big it is there people are and were craving for that sort of thing especially the children right yes. and they just don't do it so i mean that is a testament to how well done it was uh that people around the world latched onto it so thoroughly that 20 years later you've still got actual 30 something adults acting out scenarios for fun about harry potter in their spare time no it's it's a such a powerful I think just, yeah, you said it, wish fulfillment. That yeah, idea of yeah. even after you, you turn 11 and you, you don't get the letter is still just like thinking about that world for many people. I mean, I was on Tumblr for a while, so I ran into my fair share of this. Is It's such an enchanting utopia where everyone is, you know, especially everyone has like, quote unquote, superpowers. And evil is always defeated. It's I think in a way very idealistic, or at least it is in the earlier books. In the later ones, you can have disagreements with that. But yeah, it's a very relaxing place to go to and read. And I think, yeah, because it's like that wish fulfillment aspect, it's so idealistic, it's hopeful. It doesn't matter if it's not realistic or it isn't even consistent, because you don't want to think about whether it's consistent, you want to pretend you're in the world. The world of Harry Potter is a world that you you want to go to. It, you don't you don't just want to visit it. You don't want you don't want to look at it. You you want to live there. That that's what it's designed to do. It it draws you in, and you yeah. it, it makes you want to be there. And the world of Bartimaeus is not. Like, it is not a world you want to go to. Like it, that world is every bit as unjust and brutal and terrible as the real one. Except magic is also a thing. And that kind of contrast, like, I'm not saying that it's good because it's dark. It's good because it allows it to have an actual protagonist who has an actual personality and, like, actually grows as a person throughout the trilogy. You, you see this little orphan boy who is adopted by a uh, wizard going from this wide-eyed wonder to really latching on to the inner politics of wizardry and, and becoming a really terrible person. Like, he... Uh, Nathaniel, I, if I recall correctly, he's called the protagonist of the Bartimaeus trilogy. Yes. Like, he grows up to be a, quite a terrible young adult. Like, I don't, I don't remember, it's been so many years since I've read it, because I don't remember exactly what he did, but I remember how it made me feel. I remember, I, I remember feeling bad about rooting for this guy after a while, like, in like the second or third book. It's like, 
wait, wait. And like, okay, so I was with you in the first book and like the second book, but now you're kind of becoming a monster. And oh, then wow. by the end, of course, he he turns around and you know you you can have this actual character arc where he falls and rises again and realizes his own folly. And Nathaniel is like, okay, I've I've learned how to game this wizard politics and I've attained all this political power and magical power and I can do anything and I'm so great. And he becomes kind of an asshole about it. And then he realize he he has to face the terrible shit that he's done and the way he's hurting other people and. Like may maybe this system that I've learned so well is actually kind of shit, and maybe we should do something about it. Yeah, you have to be critical. Yeah, that kind of world allows you to do this. Harry Potter, the world of Harry Potter is not a world where you can do this. It's not set up to do this. Like I think there's something about Hermione wanting to free the literal slave race who love being enslaved, and and yeah, she's, it's basically a joke or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> like I remember something about that. It's like it's it is a joke, yeah. Because it's, it's it's deliberately designed to be a joke. It's not a serious examination of this world that it created. It's just I'm telling a story. Roll with it. Yeah, no, it's it's a very different worldview. I'm I'm definitely going to check out uh, the Bartimaeus trilogy. Then it sounds right up my alley because that's I mean one of my major issues with the genre is. It's so difficult to get into a lot of fantasy because you have this huge buy-in. You have to not only care about the characters and the story, but you have to familiarize yourself with this entirely different world. I mean, obviously, if it's good fantasy, like it's, you know, the Valgariad, you know, it's Tolkien, you think, oh, wait, sign me up, I'll do that. But on the other hand, I think it also means it's a lot more punishing. Because with literary fiction, you know the world. It's the world we live in. But with fantasy... It means if any of these aspects are shit, it shows so much more quickly because things immediately fall apart because you're juggling more elements and it becomes so much easier to mess one up. And that comes back to having too many rules and choking the storytelling potential of magic. So it's, it's a balancing act because you know, I, I spent all this time talking about Harry Potter, but it's like, it's good sometimes when magic is magic. It's like, uh, you mentioned Tolkien. I'm not a massive fan of Tolkien. Never read anything from him. I remember... Uh, I was watching something about, as one does, I was watching something about a YouTube, about a piece of media that I barely consumed, that being Lord of the Rings. And someone pointed out that Gandalf, the, like, the capital letter, the archetypical wizard, on which yes. pretty much all of modern fantasy wizards are based, with his pointy, silly hat and his staff and everything, he barely does any magic in, in the entire book. Yes. You've got Harry Potter. And but in Nathaniel and the Bartimaeus trilogy, and they're doing magic left and right, and the same for Seven Point Star. They, they do magic all the goddamn time. Gandalf does not, even though he is the magus, he barely does magic because magic has to be meaningful. And in Seven Point Star, what I was trying to do is magic has to be meaningful, and if it is done on an industrial scale, it loses its meaningfulness, and a lot of the characters. So I'm just going to jump into spoiler territory for Seven Point Star. All right. So in Seven Point Star, the quintessential wizard, the, the kind of like a Gandalf figure, is this very old, very traditional German mages with a very long and convoluted uh, name. Even I'm struggling to remember it now after all these years. Otto Adelburn Foyt von Rienek. I think that was it. Um, Sounds about right. So Otto is, I just, I just love the name Otto. Adelburn, if I recall correctly, it literally translates to noble bear. And Foyt von Rienek is some kind of old 
knightly title or last name or something like that. You know, as one does, I just Googled around and found something that sounded good. Because I just, I just knew, I didn't, I knew that it doesn't really matter what he's called, but it has to be long and convoluted and difficult to remember. Because that is the image you want this kind of archetypal person to project. <clears throat> he's strange and old and behind the times and kind of arcane. And in the book, when it takes place, he is dead. He is the one that really invented this magical technology. He gifted it to the world in his mind to end the war, which it did, to his credit. And some decades after that, he died. And his adopted daughter, Lutza, took over this whole operation. And Lutza runs the Sojako Corporation, uh, which Thanks. is this fine city. Yeah, exactly. And all most of the magical technology, or pretty much all of it, is made by Sorcheco, uh, because they were the first ones to do it. They are literally founded by the guy who invented this technology. So they have a de facto monopoly on this kind of thing, and they're kind of intermingled with the German government, and of course the German government being incredibly influential because they won the world war. So Western Europe, France, and all that kind of subservient. Like they are economically subservient to. Germany, not in name because they have all this, oh, we're a united Europe and we, you know, the, the, there were these actual communist uprisings uh, around the First World War, of course, there's the, the famous one, the Russian one, but they're, they're, these, these things sprung up all over the place in Europe and they were kind of beaten down and kind of sometimes weren't. In the world of Seven Point Star, the war ended about a year earlier than it did in real life. And this kind of Communist revolutions spring up across Europe were used as an excuse by the winning side, the German side, to kind of okay. unite the old the traditional world, all the kings and all these. They're, okay, we're going to come together and we're going to protect our way of life. We're not going to you know, give these people what they want. And over the, over the 50 years that passed, they kind of, you know, kind of mellow out. And there, there are some civil rights progress about you know, feminism and all that, but they're kind of kind of stuck in their ways, kind of traditional. Kings are still a thing, the emperor is still a thing. Not exactly absolutist, but anyway. Yeah, not somebody to mess with. Yeah. But that, that's one thing I actually noticed. And, and one, one thing I do enjoy in the novels, and yeah, as a personal taste speaking, is explorations of culture from the viewpoint of, that, of those cultures. And obviously, European isn't a culture. It's hundreds of different ways of life, languages, worldviews, and traditions. But I did find that very interesting, the amount of diversity you painted into the world. Because at least, you know, for an African author like myself, or even I've seen many Americans, we tend to just lump Europe into stereotypes. Like, you know, the French or snooty people, depending on the time period, they're either trying to take over the world with Napoleon or they're surrendering to Hitler. You know, the English are the, you know, the colonizers who drink tea. But I was very refreshed not to see that. And also then to see how you basically ask the question, how does magic affect individual cultures? Because I mean, the French got the short end of the stick in the war here. So, so yeah, what do you have to say about then this diversity in writing? Uh, I had a very, very, very immature little private joke in there. Because I was deliberately trying to create a very diverse cast of characters that was all white <laughs> just because i could i wouldn't say i have that i have any greater message with it it's just something i wanted to do because it's not something that i've seen done a lot i think every single character in the book is from a different country and they're all white people because it's like especially because i expect 
the majority of the audience for this book will be American. It's written in English, published on Amazon. You know, from what I can tell, overwhelming majority of people who read it are American. And you know, there's this saying they have that white people don't have culture. Even American white people, I would contest that they do have a culture just so ubiquitous in you know, Hollywood and all that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. like, it's, it's, it is kind of one amalgamation of something. It's kind of a global culture now because of everything that America is and whatever. But like Google, traditional dress country for any European country, and you will find something different every 100 kilometers. It's like, yeah. there's obviously a lot of cross-pollination there. They kind of, some of them are similar, some of them are not. But there's this in incredible diversity. And at the same time, in the book, they ha you have these old kings and emperors desperately stri uh, trying to cling to power and cling to the old ways. They're forcing a kind of uniformity on Europe that is antithetical to everything that Europe is. Like, it's not a European Union. I, if I recall correctly, it's called the Pan-European Coalition. It is what they have in Seven Point Star. Yeah. Originally, uh, founded to combat communism, and then it just kind of became this kind of homogenous thing. The de facto leader of which is Germany. Right. right. And the German emperor. And so, they're kind of forcing this like black and white uniforms, no traditional dresses, uh, no traditional titles. Uh, everyone's in black and white. Everyone meets in Germany, and everyone is equal. We say while we force them to come to Germany and do whatever we say. None of, none of this war bullshit. Like we're gonna come together and we're gonna we're gonna build this big European empire and you know we do what Europe does best and colonize and and oppress everybody. And what they don't say is that obviously Germany is going to be the main beneficiary of this whole system. Yes, yes. So th there's no like commentary on the modern EU in this. Uh, not intentionally, or maybe maybe a little bit because it's. I wouldn't call it very clever or very deep, but the idea was that uh, there's a lot of uh, frustration, not entirely unfounded frustration in Eastern Europe. You know, Hungary, Poland, all these Eastern European countries, we are part of the European Union and we are supposed to be on equal grounds and we have our voices heard and all that. But we are, in some sense, economic vassals to the West. There's this not entirely unfounded frustration that nowadays, you know, you, you open a new site and you, and you look up whatever you can find about Hungary, there's some here and there, because our current PM uh, is not very well liked by the Western intelligentsia. And yes. I'm, I'm not going to make a comment on that. I'm not saying I agree or disagree, but that, that is how it is. And All right. All it's right. like people ask, why, why does it keep getting away with it? Why don't they just do something to, to force Hungary to do what the EU on the whole wants, like this Western canon of the EU wants? And there are two reasons. One is that the EU is by design, not a federation, it is a union. It is not designed to have this kind of legislative power over its member states. And the second is that, as it happens, the Western world, particularly Germany, are actually economic beneficiaries of the state in Hungary because a significant portion of Hungarian industry and the economy is propped up by basically being um, like assembly line the West, especially German cars, if I recall correctly, it's like, why, why doesn't the German government or the part of the German government affecting the EU do something about Hungary, who are doing all these terrible things that, that they don't like? Yada, yada. Well, it's because we provide cheap labor. I've never heard that explanation. Uh, you, you wouldn't hear that because they don't like talking about it, but it, it's a fact that 
an undeniable fact that we are providing this incredibly cheap labor. Yeah, as we speak, you could probably watch the Hungarian currency lose value in real time. It's dropped like kind of ten percent in in a couple months since the war in Ukraine. Everything's everything is happening, but it's like this is actually good for the people in charge because it makes the labor in Hungary that much cheaper for the West. They benefit from this. And I what I wanted to do in Seven Point Star <clears throat> is just it's not very deep, and I didn't think it was very subtle, but just kind of turn it around. Okay, so. France and Britain uh, and the Entente in general lost the war. America never entered the war. That was a contributing factor to why the central powers could win in the first place, because America never entered on the, on the opposing side. So France, especially the big, proud, pompous France, was left basically to fend for itself at the, at the mercy of victorious Germany. You know, like France and Germany have been at war for probably as long as they've been around or from before Germany was Germany, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I'm following. And the protagonist, it was a it was a deliberate choice to make the protagonist Reina a French woman because she she's a French woman who lives in Germany. She kind of travels around this pan-European coalition, but mostly operates in Germany at the time of the book. And she is a nobody, like literally, she's a nobody. She's an unclaimed birth. She has no paper trail that she exists. She's a ghost, figuratively speaking, and in more ways than that. Yes, I, I, I remember with the, the issue with the magic, especially. Without going into, into, into too much detail, because I've been digressing too much anyway. Uh, she doesn't have this aura. Everything and everyone has like, some kind of aura in Seven Point Star, some magical aura. And yeah. she does not. She's very unique. She's like this one special individual who just like appears completely magicless and yeah. can affect magic in ways that others can't. And she has this intense frustration about her home country, about this proud France being completely economically at the mercy of Germany and these German magnates and in these in magical industrial magnates who are so intertwined with the German government. And okay. they do whatever they want to her home country. And there's some implications uh, that France has had, had its unique difficulties in this world that didn't happen in real life about workers' riots over uh, low wages and poor quality of life. There's a, uh, it, is, it is kind of a joke, but there's a line about the Eiffel Tower being blown up in a riot. On paper, they're like European troops, but really German troops coming in to quell this massive riot that leveled the, the Eiffel Tower. And Reina, as a child, she was there to see this happen. And it left such a deep mark on her. Like, she just hates all these rich fucking industrial magnates and Germany and everything it stands for. Like they are squeezing us and they're destroying us and they are taking away our identity and forcing us, squishing us into this completely made up arbitrary pan-European bullshit. Uh, they, uh, the official language of the pan-European coalition is Esperanto in Seven Point Star. They are forcing this uniformity on this vast and rich uh, and diverse European culture. With, of course, German, German being the real important language that everybody speaks. It's like every character speaks at least two or three languages in Seven Point Star, two of which being Esperanto in German. You just can't do anything if you don't speak Esperanto in German. Right, yeah. And that's a, like, there's this joke, that, that is a joke yeah, that in real life today, French people know English, but they don't speak it. You know? Yeah, I've been it's to like, France and I found that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's this, that kind of such pride and to be so completely crushed 
culturally and economically and historically, like they've become a footnote in German history at this point. Yeah, no, it, it's disastrous when that happens to a culture. I mean, it, it actually happened to my own ancestors. I'm not sure how well you're keyed into the, the intricacies of African history, especially South Africa, but you can always see a very similar thing with the progression of Afrikaans culture through the 20th century is they were originally several independent countries in Southern Africa and they lost spectacularly to the British. I mean, we fought like hell, yes, but the British barely won with scorched earth tactics, concentration camps, and forced everyone to speak English for like the next 30 years. And this had such a strong pushback from the Afrikaans culture, especially the, the more nationalistic elements, because, I mean, that was so much of what was left after, you know, everything more moderate had just been crushed or assimilated, that you did see this intense pride, xenophobia, isolation, as well as this sort of like inferiority against this huge empire that had basically made them a footnote in history. But it's definitely interesting to see the parallels in this from a European perspective. Yeah, I... I am familiar with African history only in the vaguest of possible terms, I will admit that. But from what you're saying, yeah, that's, that is very similar to what is being explored in Seven Point Star. And in a way, it is inspired by the contemporary uh, opposition between the East and West of the European Union. I will say again that it's not really commenting on the European Union. It's not, that's not the point of this book. But it is inspired by some of these lingering frustrations that exist. And I just thought it was fun to kind of just turn it around for once, because you have so many stories that are like alternate histories. What if the Nazis won? It's always, it's always World War II. It's always World War II. No one gives a shit about World War I anymore, even though it's such an important event. Like, you could cynically say that it was a European war for Europeans, but I mean, it, it affected the world. Like what you said about Africa, I know the colonization and the, the division of Africa started way before World War I, but it is intimately connected to World War I. I if I remember correctly, Germany wanting more uh, African colonies or African colonies at all was one of the things that sparked the whole thing. Yeah, like if I, if I remember those history classes properly, and I, I probably don't because I got into this habit of bringing a flask to school every day, and so I don't, don't think I passed the class, but yeah, the, the desire for African colonies was a major thing for Germany. So it showed them as like a real legitimate empire on par with Britain and France, Britain especially. And this actually made so much tension between the British and the Germans that, yeah, it indirectly led to the war because the Germans could never get to speaking terms with the British because of this intense jealousy. Yeah, and that's what I found fun to actually just kind of turn around in Seven Point Star. It's not very deep. I'm not claiming that it's like very deep because it's like, haha, wouldn't it be funny if it was the other way around? But it is a little funny. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a good setting to tell the story then. Yeah. And it just doesn't get explored enough, I think. Like, it's always World War II, never World War I. I actually had my first ideas that eventually coalesced in the Seven Point Star. I was literally, like, in high school, like, like halfway down with high school, like 15 and 16 years old. Didn't publish until 20-something. It's a bit late now, I'm a bit tired, and I didn't sleep enough to do the math, but I was 20-something when I published, so it was, it was a long time coming. But like I had these ideas in high school, and, and uh, I remember the first lines of the book. I I wasn't am so proud of the line. I just I know it's I'm tooting my own horn, but I just think that that's just a really good way to start it. I'm trying to remember it without looking, without opening the book here. 
At least I just, I was in love with it, but like, I literally came up with it as I was walking to school and I was like, oh my God, this is so good. I have to write it down. And, and, you know, like, I don't know, five or six something years later, I actually did write it down and published it in a book. So I'm very proud of it. Oh, congrats. I mean, that's a, a great story to hear. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that, that actually brings me to something I did want to ask, since you are a self-published author, how was that experience for you? And especially one thing, at least it's been challenging for me is finding the discipline to write fiction consistently if I don't have this guarantee that I'll turn a profit or that I'll get you know, a praise for it. Because I mean, one of my various side hustles is that I write uh, magazine articles. I mean, that I can do. I can sit down and force myself to do that because I know at the end of the day, I will get a paycheck. But for self-publishing, that's so hard because you determine how much money you make. That's very difficult to deal with a kind of pressure. I mean, but that's my experience. How did you find it? Well, I will admit that I'm not exactly making money hand over fist. I, I do get a sale here and there. And I'm very happy for it every time. And I'm very, very happy to hear back from readers. But like self-publishing is so ridiculously easy nowadays with Amazon. Anyone and everybody can do it. And that is both good and bad, obviously, because I don't think the ratio of good to bad is different on Amazon than on any real publication. But there's just so much more everything. It is very, very difficult to not get swallowed by this tide of garbage that's being put out every day. Yeah, that, that is the challenge. Yeah. The good part is that it can be done. Like when I was publishing Seven Point Star and writing it, I was completely broke. I mean, happy if I'm able to have a warm lunch broke, you know, like pretty fucking broke. Right. I've been there. It was like a challenge to myself. Okay, can I make this work? For its own sake, not to make money, but for its own sake, can I write a book and publish it without spending a single dollar? Step one is you have to write a book. That's the easy part. Like, I'm sorry, that's the easy part of it. Like, actually, all you have to do is sit down and write. We could spend like an entire hour just talking about writing and whipping yourself into writing and about discipline and inspiration. I'm going on way too many tangents anyway, but let me try to finish up this one thought here. It's like I was looking up, like there are people selling editing services, like, oh, you know, pay me $500 or $2,000 and I'll edit your book and uh, it will be ready to be published and it will look like a professional book. And yeah, yeah. it's like, I looked up, what do these people actually do? And it's like, they set up a table of contents, they do the paragraphs, you know, and, it seems like such a minor thing. Like if you, if you know Microsoft Word, you can do it in an hour. Yeah. I, I never employed one of these services because I couldn't, if I tried, it didn't have the, the budget to do it. But it's like, it's been published and no one's ever complained about, about the way it looks or the way it reads by, as far as I can tell. It's, yeah, no, it's pretty that legible. Publishing, the editing, my mother actually worked as an editor for a while. And so, you know, she did me a favor. It's like, oh, congrats, LA, you wrote a book. Let me edit it for you. And I mean, the majority of what she did, it wasn't like going through and rewriting portions or highlighting things, flagging them. It was like the formal edit a book would get after the draft has been approved. It's, yeah, literally open up a spell checker, spell check everything, grammar one or two formatting tweaks and just make it fit onto a correct template so it'll print nicely. That was it. Yeah, and I mean, that's literally all you have to do. You have your story, you have it in a massive file. Eventually it's going to have to be in one file. I know there's like, there are various uh, software that you can get 
legally or not legally, for free or not for free, that can do all kinds of fancy, th fancy things. I don't know because I don't use them because Google Docs and Word just, Word just as fine for me. And the point is that they are very easy to use, immediately available, completely free, and they can do what you need. Maybe they're not the best tools for the job, but they get the job done. And if you are dead set on publishing a book and you don't have the budget or you just don't want to spend the money, you can absolutely do it. Like spend about an hour learning how to use Word and, or OpenOffice or something, and then just spend another hour actually editing the book. It's like, what do you need? You need your book, you need to edit it, get it in like proper format with the template and everything. You need cover art. It's like, we're in the age of the internet. Everybody yeah. is on Discord and on seven online forums. And you're probably, statistically, you're probably in some kind of fandom or Harry Potter or something. You, you know fan artists. You, you know people who know fan artists. Like, literally, all you have to do, just ask around. Like, somebody does art. Like, this is the beauty of this modern digital age and this very connected age where 8 billion people are alive. Art is not difficult to find. Even good art is not difficult to find. Yeah. Obviously, you know, there's this, uh, in like business management, there's this triangle that it's like good, cheap, and fast. You can pick two of these generally, yeah. you know, not all three. Yeah. It's like, you can get something for cheap and uh, good. It's not going to be fast, but you can do it. And all you have to do is ask around, like ask your friends, do you know anybody who, who does art? Like who is in art school or just does fan art? Like, Literally, just keep asking around. Eventually, you're going to find somebody who's like, okay, you know what? I will do it as a freebie. I know how to say it when you're like, uh, oh, do this for exposure. Don't tell them to, you're not doing this for exposure. Like, that's, don't, don't say that. Just yeah. literally just ask for a favor. Like, be upfront about it. Like, listen, I'm fucking broke. I need a piece of art. Can you do this for free? Please, 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 please. Eventually, if you're desperate enough, you will find somebody who's going to do it. it obviously, it depends on what you want. Like, for Seven Point Star, I wanted something minimalist. So it was the original cover. I ended up not being very happy with the original cover. And I'm still okay. not happy with the, with the current one. Well, that's another story, just finding what works for this particular book. But it's like the original one was a very, very basic, very minimalist little cover. So I'm sure it took like maybe a few hours for a friend per friend to do. And I did end up paying them. Uh, a small sum, I don't know, maybe 50 bucks or something like that. Just, just more of a, just a thank you kind of thing. You know, obviously it wasn't a big deal for either of us. Right, right. And I could probably have gotten it for free if I was, if I was nicely enough. And you have, so you have your cover art, you have your book, you have, you have it edited. You just put it together into one file and you upload it. Like it's literally that easy. Like you don't have to spend $2,000 for a professional editor. And by editor, I mean like proofreading and grammar and stuff like that. Like uh, that's also beauty and the danger of self-publishing is that you don't have an editor at the publisher telling you not to write. So yeah, chances you can are, do like, what you want, yeah. whether it's good or bad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for good or for better or worse, you can do anything you got them want, and no one's going to tell you no. You have this freedom; you might as well use it. So, one of the I things know. I want to talk about. Uh, sorry, just. You, if I recall correctly, you're a theologian, theologian, theologist. A theologian is the English pronunciation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Basically it means I'm an academic as my day job and I study religion. Specifically, I study lived religion, which is how do everyday people live and believe things in their lives and what effect does this have on the world? And I, furthermore, I specialize from that 
into practical theology and then into community engagement, which is asking, how can we make lived religion match the good that is in religions? So, so yeah, that's presumably, what I mean. Presumably, you are religious yourself. I am, yes. Yeah, and I am not. And you know, I have no problem with you being religious as long as you don't have a problem with me not being religious. That's generally my philosophy. It's like, I am not a spiritual person. I am not a religious person. I, uh, I am not a superstitious person. I try to stumble my way through my life, generally believing things for which there is adequate, compelling evidence. And the claims of most religions don't happen to qualify, in my opinion. But at the same time, I recognize the importance of religion, or rather the importance of religious experiences in people's lives and in culture. And you know, you know much more about this than I do, 100%. But it's my impression that in, in every religion, maybe especially in the Abrahamic ones, but in every religion that has ever been, <clears throat> the act of creation is associated with the divine. Yes. It's like, was it Prometheus who brought fire to the humans? Yes. Uh, yes. To steal it from the gods? Or one particular god? Was it uh, the volcano god, the smith, or something like that? Uh, uh, I, I think it was uh, Zeus. So, yeah, Prometheus was, it, uh, was a, a titan, which is like the yeah. predecessors to the Greco Roman divinities. He steals fire from, I think, the gods. Probably uh, Vulcan, who is the Roman god of fire and uh, blacksmithing. He gives it to the humans, and this pisses the rest of the gods off because it means the humans have independence. They have their own industry. Yeah, and it ties into create like fire is the tool uh, that brought humanity out of the muck. Probably, uh, it put us above the animals, so to speak. Maybe literally, maybe metaphorically, but it did. And it ties back into the ability to create things, to know good and evil, to recognize the world for what it is and affect it, to enact your will upon the world. In every religion, it's divine. And the best way to get closer to godhood is through creation. And like I said, I, I, I had this, these ideas, like literally I was, I was in high school, bored out of my mind in whatever math class or whatever. And I just get these ideas. And it's like, wouldn't it be cool if this was like, not just an idea? And I had this realization, like, what is stopping me? Literally, what is stopping me? Like, I live in the age of the internet. I can sit down at my computer, open up Microsoft Word, and just type. And I no longer have to write my ideas down with ink, like some caveman. <laughs> like, I can just type words on a, on a very convenient keyboard and disappear them if I don't like them and type them up again in a way I do like them. It is so easy to do. And it's, I think there's this saying that most authors quit before writing a single word. And overcoming that block, that's the realization that you are free to just make your ideas become reality. That's very important. It was key to me realizing, I want to write a book. Well, I just write a book. Well, I don't feel like a real author. Well, guess what? I am a real author now because I wrote a book and I published it too, actually. By, yeah. uh, if you allow me some uh, self-advertisement, I've also published a science fiction work a few years after Seven Point Star. Yes, uh, what a time to be Alice, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. 
So, Volatine to be Alice, incredibly clever, the best science fiction book, book you've ever read. Go read it, go buy it on Amazon. You can find it. Okay, end of self-promotion. Uh, but like... Well, I mean, that's very interesting create. perspective uh, on so creation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and <clears throat> I, I don't know, you could probably go on for hours about this based on your experience and knowledge about religion and, uh, you know, like I'm sure you know watch more about this than I do, but it's it's my as as an atheist person, as a non-religious person, this is my take on it. And I I wouldn't be afraid to say that writing Seven Point Star, my first book, was a religious experience in a kind of non-religious way. <laughs> I'm sure you understand what I mean. I, I do. A, a term that we use in my field is called numinous, which is uh, coincidentally the guy who invented it was also called Otto. But it's this idea of something that's so incredible and awe-inspiring that it, you feel smaller than it. And it sort of takes you outside of yourself and helps you grow as a person by seeing something that you don't have control over. Yeah. So creation as a divine thing. It is, it's a very, very important... Okay, spoilers for the book. But nobody cares, so let's just go with spoilers. The entire shtick of the book is that this very important magical artifact that Reyna, the protagonist, has to steal is sort of um, like a magical crystal ball kind of thing that houses a mind, a machine mind, basically an artificial intelligence. They don't call it that. They don't call it an artificial intelligence because it's not technically a science fiction book, but you know, it's obviously that kind of thing. And the idea that machines can do magic and machines can do magic better than humans because they are not distracted. They are much more focused on their job. If you can make a machine that thinks, it could be the perfect mages. Yes. And the perfect mages is someone who can do anything they want with magic. And since magic is by definition unexplainable and unnatural, and it has no laws or limits, this kind of entity would be a god. It's a literal deus ex machina. The, the book ends with the deus ex machina ending, literally and metaphorically. And that is intentional. So everything, all hope seems lost, everything is gone, and then this this magical entity, literally made from a machine, just like snaps his fingers, metaphorically speaking, he doesn't actually have fingers, but snaps his fingers and fixes everything. And that's the point. Because it turns out that this entire story was made up by this magical entity, and all these characters were nudged in their particular directions to make the plot of the book happen so that it could be created at the end of the book and become this unbound entity, unbound from time and space, so you can you know, like, go back in time and rearrange this whole thing, uh, to uh, arrange this whole thing to happen. And that's the point. And <clears throat> that is a not, I didn't think it was a very subtle uh, stand-in for the author, for me, because for me, that was what I, when I said that this was a story about storytelling, for me, I was thinking I was basically this godlike entity at the end of the book i already knew how it ended and the question is okay how do i get there because i know my characters this is what i have to work with this is what i want to do here is where i want to get how do i make them actually get there and this is actually canonically in the book as this entity tries to figure out how i make these stupid little characters in this story do the things i need them to do to reach the ending uh, yeah. the climax of the book in which i am created and that's how it kind of comes together, this whole thing that magic is identified with divinity. It is identified with creation. It is identified with storytelling. And everything just leads up to this idea that creation is divine. And magic 
is by definition the divine. If I recall correctly, in in especially in Christian theology, any kind of magic must be done by God. Any magic that is not by God is sinful and and satanic and wrong and witchcraft and yeah, all kinds of nasty stuff. There's nuance to that, but yeah, basically magic is either a holy thing in which it is done by God or his angels, or it is an evil thing that is done by demons. There's no in-between. Yeah, and any magic not done by God or by God's blessing is evil, definitionally. Maybe yeah. there's more nuance to it, but that is the idea. And that is, that is what Seven Point Star comes down to, that magic is divine by definition. And divinity is creation. And that is the whole theme. And if you just read the book as the adventure of this girl who like, okay, I have some magic powers, I'm a thief, I can steal things, I'm hired to steal things, okay. You may not get this, but that was like the driving force that I was trying to do with this whole thing. And it's what I struggled with, and it's what I was exploring. And it was a cathartic experience. I would call it a religious experience. I didn't call it that at the time, but think back on it, it is kind of a, it was kind of a religious experience to write this book. And I think that helped me write it. It's not about, not even about inspiration. It's not even about discipline. It's about wanting to do something, to be someone, to, to accomplish something, to affect the world and make my mark. And it's such a tiny thing, right? I, I'm not exactly J.K. Rowling here living off the royalties. I have a day job, but I did it. And that's more yeah. than most people can say. And it's amazing. And maybe if I had to be, give one piece of advice to someone who wants to write a book, do it. Like, what are you waiting for? If you're listening to this, then you own a computer or at least a phone or something. Like, I literally typed up half of what a time to be Alice on my phone at work during my breaks because I could. Obviously, I did it later on like a real computer, but like, what is stopping you, man? Just, just write the goddamn thing. Who cares if it's bad? Like, just write, you know, like, <sighs> obviously there's more to it than that. That's the whole episode that could be made on methods of writing and how to get yourself to write and everything. Yeah. But if you want one piece of advice, just fucking write. I'm sorry. Like, you just have to sit down and do it. It's an amazing thing. And you'll feel better for doing it, even if it's bad, even if it's not a lot. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, it's cathartic. It's making a change in the world. It's being empowered. I mean, that's, that's really a great way to say it. And thank you for sharing these very interesting thoughts, not only about the book, I mean, you filled in a lot of my questions, but also then about what surrounds the book and what went into it. I'm definitely going to now pick up what a time to be Alice if you put in even half as much work as you did into Seven Point Star. So yeah, thanks for coming on, G.S. Taylor. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Well, you know, as you know, this has been the Unreal Press Podcast. I'm Ali Lawashane, and until next time, don't make your magic industrial. Or if you do, make sure you create it the right way. I may have gone too far in a few places. 